Well, good morning. If I can have you make your way back to your seats, that would be much appreciated. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving and uh, enjoyed time with your family, enjoyed uh, great food and great fellowship. I know that I did. Um, usually it's a busy, my brother comes in town from North Carolina, usually on Thanksgiving. Um, and we were visiting uh, this last, uh, when, we, when he was here. And, you know, it gets, when all your family's in town, <clears throat> it can get busy, right? You kind of go from one thing to the next to the next. And he said, he said, yeah, we miss being around family, but sometimes on holidays it's nice to come for a couple days and then, and then go. Because in our family, Thanksgiving kind of runs into Christmas. It just never ends. It's kind of like this month and a half long uh, vacation and uh, holiday. So we love it, uh, but it's, um, it's good sometimes to get back to normalcy. I'm glad to see everyone here today. I invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 14 to 18. It should be in your bulletin if you want to follow along there or in your Bibles. John 1, 14 to 18, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this particular text today. And God, my my prayer is single. I pray that we would know and experience the fullness of Christ. And this morning, this Christmas season, that with all the things that we will be full of and our lives will be full, that Christ would be at the center of it and we would find ourselves full of him. In Jesus' name, amen. So this Sunday is the first day of Advent season. Advent is, um, comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means the coming So it's a time of the year when Christians traditionally have celebrated the coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ, celebrated his first coming, and also look in anticipation for his second coming or second advent. It's the four Sundays prior to Christmas Eve is the the advent season, from from the fourth Sunday prior to Christmas Eve. And Advent is a great time. It's something we've done in the past. Uh, we've done it somewhat or in an organized way and sometimes not in such an organized way. But it is a great time because it helps to lengthen and intensify our focus on the coming of Jesus. It's not something that we want to celebrate for just a day or even just for a month. We want, to, we want this to spill over into the coming year and into every day and week of our year. But it gives us this intensified and lengthened focus on the coming of Christ. Um, you know, in our, in our home, we love this time of year, and we just love it. I mean, this, the song that comes on the radio, it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's, that's not a song we'd sing in church, but I totally track with that song. I love this time of year, okay? We start setting up Christmas decorations now in late October, 
all right? And we would do it in August if, uh, well, if, if Alyssa would let us. <clears throat> We'd probably do it in August. We love this time of year. We, I love everything about it. I love the music. I love the gatherings. I love the decorations. I love the worship we do here on Sunday. I love thinking about Jesus coming. But let's face it, it is an incredibly busy time of year, isn't it? Uh, we're busy with all kinds of different things, setting up decorations and traveling and shopping for gifts and opening gifts and going to gatherings and eating the food and preparing the food. All of these things cause us to be very, very busy in this time of year. We are full, you might say. We are full. And sometimes, maybe this doesn't happen to you, but in my heart, sometimes Jesus kind of gets pushed to the edges. Jesus, I mean, he's important, right? But he's kind of like that background music, right? He's kind of like the background music or the decorations, but not the main theme, not the main thing. Verse 16 is the verse I want to focus on this morning. And that's the only verse. Well, I'm going, to, we're going to, I'm going to support it with the other verses. But that's the main verse I want to focus on. And it says this. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Is that better? Let me say it again. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace grace. With all that we will be full of this Christmas, and it's, in, it's inevitable, we will be full, our lives will be full. My desire from today is that you would be full of the fullness of Christ this Christmas. If I could write a Christmas card to you, you know, all these Christmas cards come out, something like, may your Christmas be full of good cheer and happiness and presents and candy and good stuff. If I could write a Christmas card to you today, It would be this, and I think this would be Christ's Christmas card to us. May your Christmas, and all year, but your Christmas, be filled with the fullness of Christ. Not pushed to the edges, not the background music, but the fullness of Christ. I love how it says, from his fullness. From his fullness, we have all received. It's not me. Okay, it's not me. All right, from his fullness. So this is not limited to our fullness. This is limited to Christ's fullness. From his fullness, we have all received. We have all received. So this fullness that we are talking about today is not something we just want to think about. It's something we want to experience. It's not something we just want to talk about but it's something we want to possess. Here's what Jesus said in John 4, verse 14. Whoever drinks from the water that I give will never thirst again. I think it's fair to say that this morning, Jesus wants you to know fullness in him. Fullness in him. It is possible to be so thrilled with Jesus Christ That everything, even the best of things in this world, even good things in this world, in comparison with Jesus, seem dull. Right? In comparison with Jesus, I'm not saying they are dull, but in comparison with Christ, they seem like nothing. In fact, that's what Paul said. In comparison with Christ, everything in this world, even the best of things, can seem utterly dull. I'm going to get loud, so when I start yelling, just forgive me. 
It is possible for this. It is possible to be so thrilled with Christ that even the best things in this world in comparison with Jesus seem utterly dull. Not only is this possible, but it's actually something that's offered to us. Paul says this in Colossians 2, verse 9. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of God dwells bodily in him. And he says, And you have received fullness in him. You have been filled in him. Another place, Paul prays this. It's Ephesians chapter 3. He says, He prays for the people of Ephesus and he prays for them to know the love of Christ, that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, let me ask you, if you are filled with the fullness of God, is that dull and boring? Is that background music? That is the main thing, right? If we are filled with the fullness of God, that is the main thing. Christ wants you to know fullness in him this Christmas. He does not want to be relegated to the sideline. He doesn't want to be pushed to the edges of your Christmas. With everything else that's going to be part of your Christmas, he wants to be at the center of it. He wants to fill all of it. He wants you to experience fullness in him. So to help you experience this fullness, and it's all satisfying, this fullness is all satisfying, I want to answer three questions. The first question is, whose fullness are we talking about? The second question is, what is the essence of this fullness? And the third is, who is this for? So the first question is, whose fullness? Now, this is not a trick question. You, you, you might be thinking, well, of course, you've already said it's Christ's fullness. And that's true. But let's not breeze over this as though we know all of this or as though because we've heard it before, we have it deep down in our souls. Maybe you've heard the phrase, familiarity breeds complacency. And so we hear the story of Christ, we know who he is from scripture, and it becomes so familiar to it that we become complacent to it. So let's not do that. Let's spend our time thinking about who the Bible claims Jesus Christ to be so we can experience his fullness. From his fullness, whose fullness? The fullness of Christ. This passage shows us who Jesus really is. And when we know who Jesus is, he cannot be pushed to the edges. He will not be pushed to the edges. We will want to know him in fullness. So here's how our text describes Christ. Our passage says that Jesus is fully and eternally and truly God. And without putting aside his godness, it also says that he became a human being. Both of these are massively important for you and I to experience the fullness of Christ. So let's take these one at a time. He is eternally and fully and truly God. Now you might say, why are you adding all these adjectives? Why don't you just say he's God? Why are you saying he is eternally and truly and fully God? Just so we don't make any mistake, he is eternally God. He didn't become God at a certain time. He is eternally God. We do not believe, like the Jehovah's Witness, that Jesus is a God who is a created God from, you know, Jehovah. He is eternally God. He has always been God. 
and he is fully God. He is not partially God. He is not, it's not like half of him is God and half is not. He is fully God. He and his whole person is fully God and he is truly God. In order for you and I to experience the fullness of Christ, we need a glimpse of a full and overflowing and sovereign Jesus Christ. If we have a small Christ, if, G, if our Jesus is small, then our, our, our experience of joy and fullness in him will be sporadic and will be small. If, Christ, if our Christ is big, if we have a big Christ, then we will experience an overflowing, streaming flood of his fullness. So there are three phrases in this passage that point to Christ as God. Let's just check them out one at a time. First, verse 14 starts out by calling him the word. It says, the word became flesh. The word became flesh. The word is speaking of Jesus, of course. We go back to verses 1 to 13. Let me just read the first few verses of the book of John. It says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is Jesus that's being talked about here, right? When you read through the pages of the Gospels, is this the Jesus you're thinking of? In the beginning was the Word. He was there in the beginning. He's always existed. Jesus, your Savior, my Savior, the one we celebrate, the one we celebrate the coming of on Christmas. He was there in the beginning. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right there, calling him God himself. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, all things were made through Christ. All things were made through Jesus Christ. Without him, there was nothing made that was made. John's just saying, don't make any mistake about this. He made everything. There's nothing made that he didn't make. Paul affirms this and says almost the same thing in Colossians chapter 1. When he speaks of Jesus and he says, all things were made through him, whether invisible or visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, right? Visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things, everything. Jesus is your maker, your creator. He made you. Goes on to say in Colossians 1, that in him all things hold together. So he holds you together. I love Hebrews 1 verse 3 that says that the whole universe is upheld by the word of his power. I don't know how this works, but Jesus, the baby born in a manger, was upholding the universe as he laid there. Right? He was holding all things together as he laid there as a little baby. This is Christ. And he offers you fullness in him. Verse 14 also says of Jesus, he is the only son from the father. Now, when you and I think of 
ourselves as sons and daughters of God. That is absolutely right and true. But this passage says Jesus is the only son from the Father. So in what sense is Jesus the only son in this sense? That he is the eternally begotten son of God. He has been the father's son from all eternity. And when Jesus claimed to be this, people threatened his life. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, My father's been working and I too am working. And the Pharisees picked up on that and they knew that he was claiming not just to be a son of God like you and I, but to be equal with God. And in verse 18 it says, They wanted to kill him. And eventually they did. Jesus is fully and eternally and truly God. Verse 18 simply refers to Jesus as the only God. The only God. So the fullness that we are offered today in Christ, right? Remember, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This fullness that is offered to us today is Fullness from God who has all fullness. He has no lack. If I were to offer you fullness from me, you would not be impressed. Okay? You wouldn't probably wait after church today to get close to me so I could give you of my fullness. Right? But this is God himself who offers us fullness today. One thing that makes this so amazing is that to experience the fullness of that Christ offers is not limited to who we are or what we are capable of mustering up ourselves. It is God's fullness, and he has no limits at all. Not only is Jesus fully God, but he also became truly and fully man. In verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh. God took on humanity. God put on skin. God became a man. Jesus fully and truly became a human being. And what is so amazing about this is that he knows, he knows fully what it's like to be a human being. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says that Jesus was made like us in every single way. He knew what it was like to grow tired. He knew what it was like probably to get sick. I'm sure he had a runny nose and the flu and all this stuff. He knew what it was like to suffer. He knew what it was like to be rejected. He knew what it was like to feel pain. In fact, in Isaiah 53, I find great comfort from this verse. It says that he, speaking of Jesus, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So in our sorrow, and in our grief, and in our pain, he is not someone who doesn't know how to relate. He is someone who knows how to relate. Some have suggested that when Jesus took on flesh, he ceased being fully God. In fact, he put aside some of his divine attributes and just became a man. He was God at one time, and then he became man and ceased being God. In other words, he became less than God. But I don't think our passage, our passage certainly doesn't affirm that, and I don't think anything in the Bible does. 
Everything in verses 1 through 13 tell us that Jesus is fully God. And in verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh. So he was God. He was God in the beginning. He was with God. He is God. He made all things. In him was life, etc., etc. Verse 14, and he became flesh. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 help us tremendously in this. When it says of Jesus, um, let me turn there. Philippians 2, verses 6 and 7. Speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And some would stop right there and say, see, he emptied himself. He became less than God. He set aside his divine attributes. But if we keep going, we would read that that's not what Paul is communicating at all. It says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant by being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, meaning Jesus humbled himself and became a human being in every single way. And he became a human being without ceasing to be God. Now you and I, We don't understand this, right? We don't understand all of this. This is one of those gigantic mysteries that we cannot wrap our brains around. But we just humble ourselves under God's word and say, Jesus, this baby born in a manger, we see that he is a human being. He is fully God who became a man and was still fully God. Verse 14 goes on to say, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it means to tabernacle among us. Jesus became flesh and set up his tent among human beings. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was given to Moses and the people, people of Israel. And they would construct this tabernacle and then they would worship God as a place to meet God. And then they would tear it down and when God had them move, they would move it with their stuff and their people and set it up again. The tabernacle was the place to meet with God. It was where the people would meet with the Lord. And here we see, speaking of Jesus, that he is the true tabernacle, the true meeting place of God to bring the fullness of God down to earth to us. I think this shows us that Jesus came to show us God. He came to bring God to us and to bring us to God. He came down to show us what God is like, and he came to bring us back to the Father from whom we were estranged because of our sin. John says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, but God, but Jesus has made him known to us. So Jesus came to show us what God is like. He came to reveal God to us. Jesus, in the, most, in the clearest possible way, reveals to us what God is like. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like Philip. 
Philip said to Jesus, I think it's in John 16. He said to Jesus, Jesus, just show us the Father and everything will be okay. It'll be fine with me. And Jesus, I don't think he really rebukes him, but he corrects him. He says, Philip, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen God. God in the flesh, Jesus, came to show us the invisible God. Which is why Paul says in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Why did Jesus have to become a man to show us God? Why did Jesus have to become a man in order to bring this fullness to us? Because we need a mediator. Without a mediator, namely Christ, we would be crushed by the glory of God. Without a mediator, we would be incinerated by his fullness. You guys remember that interaction between Moses and God in Exodus 34? Moses is, he's interceding for the people of Israel because they've sinned. They made this golden calf and were dancing around it and worshiping this uh, before this golden calf. And God was threatening to destroy them. And Moses is interceding for the people, and, and, then it, and then it changes gears, and Moses says, Lord, if you send us out but you don't go with us, we, just, we cannot go. You have to go with us. And then Moses gives us audacious requests, and he says, Father, God, show me your glory. And God said, no one can see my face. Basically, he says, he says, I'll show you my glory, but you cannot see my face because no one can see my face and live. In our passage, it says, no one has seen God, but Christ has come to show us him. I was thinking last night, what is it like without a mediator? What would it be like for us to be exposed to God in the fullness of his glory? And a few thoughts came to mind. It would be like standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls. It would be glorious, wouldn't it? But we would be crushed to be like a pancake. We would be flattened like a pancake. To be exposed to the glory of God in his fullness would be like to be plopped on Mount Everest by a helicopter. It would be amazing, but we would be crushed by the weight of his glory. To be exposed to the glory of God without Christ as a mediator would be like to be if we could, if this could happen, to be plopped on the sun, it would be glorious for a millisecond, and then we would be incinerated by the heat. So Jesus, in this passage, offers us fullness in him. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Whose fullness? Jesus Christ, who is fully God, and who became man in order to give us from his fullness. Second question, what is the essence of this fullness? What is the essence of this fullness? Here's what it says. From his fullness, we have all received these next three words. Grace upon grace. What does Jesus come to give us when he gives us his fullness? He's come to give us grace. 
Not just grace either, but grace upon grace. Grace piled upon grace, piled upon grace. Jesus unleashes from his massive heart grace upon grace. This is the fullness that he gives. What else could we want? But God's grace. It's interesting. I find it interesting that, that, it, that this passage contrasts the law given to Moses and what comes through Jesus, which is grace and truth. The law came through Moses. What does the law do? Do you know what the law does? It shows us that we are all failures. That's all it does. It shows us we fall short. But grace and truth come through Christ. Amen for that. Grace and truth come through Jesus. So from his fullness, he gives us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The law shows us that we are utter failures. We fail. I did this exercise with the youth group one time. It was interesting. It was fun. We went through the Ten Commandments. And I said, put a one next to the one that you pass and put a zero next to the one that you fail at. We went through each one of them. From the first, you shall have no other gods before me, to the tenth, uh, you, you shall not covet. And we went through every one of them. You know what everyone's score was? Zero. Zero. No one passed a single command. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses' ministry of bringing the law was to show us we fall short. Christ's ministry of grace shows us that he did what we never could, namely obeyed the law. That he took our place in judgment on the cross. And now he offers us sheer grace. And not just a smidgen, but grace upon grace. I love James chapter 4. Where it says, but God gives more grace. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I need more grace. I feel like I need more grace. I don't need a smidgen. Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 11, your grace is sufficient for me. Grace upon grace. Uh, we, we've sung a song here on Sunday mornings, and I love this line in the song, or a couple lines. It says, you suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. That's it. He suffered in our place. He took the wrath that we, we deserved, that was, that was there for us, right? Reserved for us. And now, because of Christ's Fullness that he gives us. All we know is grace. Or do we? Is that all we know? Is grace? Do you believe this? That all that is left for you because of Christ and his fullness that is coming towards you, all that's left for you is grace. Now, if we think of grace like we think of candy fun and sweet and gooey, this doesn't make any sense, right? 
If we think of grace as just fun and sweet and gooey, warm, fuzzy, gooey, mushy, you know. Maybe candy's not mushy. Candy's gooey though, right? But if we think of God's grace as his perfect, eternal love and blessing for the undeserving, then we are in business. That's all that's left for us. Christ took every, he took our sin away. He took the judgment we deserved. And now all that's left is grace. Grace upon grace. Let's just think for a moment of how grace has so massively come to us. Ephesians 1 is a great place to go to. Verses like 3 to 14 or something. And there's a couple, th- three different places in Ephesians 1 where Paul is just overcome with the things he's talking about. And he just takes a break and worships. And he says, to the praise of the glory of God's grace. <clears throat> this is a side note. You know what Christmas ought to do when we think about God's grace coming to us through Christ? It ought to make us sing. I hope that this Christmas you learn to sing like never before. I don't care if you sound good or not. Okay? Just loud. Just loud and happy. Right? Make a joyful noise. I'm so glad the Bible does not say make a uh, harmonious noise. It just says make a joyful noise. I think it says be loud somewhere, okay? So it makes us sing. The grace of God coming through Christ on Christmas makes us sing. Where was I at? Ephesians 1. Great place to go. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Let's think for a moment of how grace has been poured out and how it comes to us in wave after wave after wave. Grace upon grace. God's grace has come to us in choosing us before the foundation of the world. That is God's grace. You did nothing to deserve it. God's grace has come to us in Christ's humble incarnation. You did nothing to deserve it. God looked down at this rebellious world and said, I'm going to do something to save it. And he sent his son. God's grace has come to us in Christ, coming to be a mediator between man and God, between you and I, between you and I and a holy God. Jesus Christ is a perfect mediator. There is one God, 1 Timothy 2 says, one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Grace has come to us in Christ going to the cross. Grace has come to us in forgiveness of all of your sins. He's taken them all away. Grace upon grace. He's removed them as far as the east is from the west, which is a long ways. Grace has come to us in reconciling us to God. Because of our sin, we were estranged from God. We were alienated alienated from God without hope in this world. And Christ came and brought us back to him. Grace has come to us in setting us free from sin. Not only are we set free from the penalty of sin, but even the ongoing actions of sinning, Jesus Christ has set us free from the bondage to it. And we can walk in freedom now. 
Grace comes to us when God disciplines us as beloved children of his when we do sin. That's God's grace. Grace upon grace. Grace comes from God when he, like Jason mentioned earlier, works every single trial and hardship and difficulty and pain and suffering in your life. When he works it all for good, that is his grace. Grace upon grace. Grace comes to us every day. I mean, my goodness, maybe every moment of every day as Jesus always lives to intercede for us. He always lives to pray for us. What a blessing. What a glory. What grace. Grace comes to us in God giving us the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives within us. God living within us. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is in us by his spirit right now. This Jesus Christ who made everything, who made all the galaxies and all the world and who gives you your next breath, he is now in us by his Holy Spirit. That is a gift of God's grace. Does that make anyone else excited? That the Holy Spirit of God dwells within us? That is amazing. Paul says in in Ephesians chapter 1 that um, this is, uh, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our full and future inheritance. This is a gift of God's grace. Grace comes to us as God exerts his power to keep us saved forever. This comes from the fullness of Christ Grace upon grace. Grace comes to us as God gives us an eternally bright future, eternal life, life with him, joy unspeakable and full of glory forever. God gives us grace in every good and perfect gift, every gift that comes down, everything that is good and perfect that comes down. It comes down from a gracious God who pours out grace upon grace on us. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you deserve any of this? None of it. None of it. We don't deserve any of it. Paul asks this rhetorical question. He says, what do you have that you haven't received? And if you received it from God as a gift, why do you boast as though you somehow earned this? No, you and I are meant to stand in awe and be in this place of awe, just receiving from the fullness of Christ, grace upon grace upon grace for the rest of our lives and even into eternity. I love, I think it's Ephesians maybe two or three, where it talks about in the ages to come, God is going to show the riches of his kindness and grace toward us in Christ. He will show us grace forever and ever. And we will never grow weary of it. Why not start being excited about it right now? Amen? His agenda for us is grace. Grace through and through. Grace upon grace.
So what is the essence of this fullness that comes from Christ? It is grace upon grace. He does not run out. There's no shortage. It's not like he's looking in you know, this, the warehouse to see if there's enough to go for this next year. It just keeps coming. He, in his fullness, pours it out upon us, grace upon grace. Question number three, who is this fullness for? This fullness of grace upon grace, who is it for? Is it for everyone? Who is the all referring to when it says, we have all received grace upon grace? Is this all? Is it referring to everyone in the entire world? More importantly, is it referring to you? Is it talking about you? Is it addressing you? Verses 11 to 13, which I didn't read, helps us with this, I think, to understand who this is referring to. Who is the all being talked about here? Let me read verses 11 to 13. It says, He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. That word receive is in verse 16. From his fullness we have all received. Here it says he came to his own, his own creatures, his own people. And they didn't receive him. They rejected him. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But to all who did receive him. That's it. This fullness is received and poured out by Christ himself on all who receive him. On all who receive Christ. Now here's the key part. On all who receive all of Christ. He will not be sliced up like a pie. I'll take that piece, but I'll leave that part up. Like I I want all that he gives me, but I don't want him to tell me to do anything. Right? I want all of his blessings. I want him to be Savior. I don't want him to be Lord. I want him to forgive my sins, but I don't want him to give me any commands. No, it's to receive all of Christ. You cannot split Christ up. Here's the amazing thing. Maybe you've had a prayer like this before. And I do this often. I mean, I just do. I, I do this often where I just come to God and I just consciously say, Lord, I am all yours. I, am, I surrender to you. I am all yours. Sometimes that's how my prayers, my prayer, prayer like, like that goes almost just like that. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus Christ gives himself to all who will receive him in his entirety. You might be saying, I do surrender to the Lord too. Maybe you pray a prayer like that. I surrender, Lord. I give everything to you. And here's what Jesus says. I give everything to you. I give myself fully to you. I am here to offer myself fully to you. And to everyone who receives Christ fully. Not saying we understand everything, but we just say, I want all of you. 
I want all of you. He pours out his fullness and his fullness, as we've seen, is grace upon grace. He gives you all of himself and along with him all his rich treasure of grace upon grace upon grace. Jesus Christ is offered fully and freely to everyone who will receive him. John Calvin wrote in his classic book, Institutes of the Christian Religion, he said this about Christ. He said, since such rich treasures of every kind of good abounds in Christ, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Since all of this is offered to us through Jesus, why would we go and try to drink from any other fountain? Let's go to this fountain that never runs dry, right? Whoever drinks from this water that I give, he will never thirst again. Jesus says in John 7, 37, He says, um, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That is fullness right there. Whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers. That means we're receiving fullness. And out of us is flowing this fullness of life. It's found in Christ. If you and I came to Christ right now without any negotiating, okay, without any negotiating, without any preconditions, without any of this, well, we don't really say this, but we kind of do this in our heart where we want to give him most of us, but not all of us. We want to have this little thing over here we, we got going on our own apart from Jesus. But we just come, we set all that aside and we say, I want all of you and I give you all of me. I want your fullness, Jesus. He would come. He would come. Whoever's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We sang earlier, joy to the world. There's a line in there that I think could be taken the wrong way because he doesn't need us to let him in. But when he comes in, he does a prior work in us and we do open up our hearts and let him in. There's a line that says, let every heart Prepare him room. Let every heart prepare him room. Would you prepare him room this morning for his fullness to come in? Would you come to him afresh this morning? Just, I mean, that that this Christmas would, that he would not be pushed to the edges. Listen, I'm not saying that you are outright rejecting Christ. We just get busy. Life gets busy. And all of a sudden, we had intentions of focusing on Christ at Christmas, right? We want to keep Christ in Christmas. I'm not sure I like that cliche, but, um, but you know what I mean. We want to keep him in Christmas, but he just invariably 
oftentimes just gets pushed to the edges, and he's just that background music. But if we would taste of his goodness, if we would taste of his fullness, like John Calvin said, we would want to come to this fountain that never runs dry. And we would want to drink from no other fountain but the fountain of Christ and his fullness. If Jesus were to write you a Christmas card today, I'm sorry, that sounds really cheesy, but oh well. If he were to give you a Christmas card, if I were this morning, it would say this, may your Christmas and all year long be filled with the fullness of Christ. Let's ask him to come, okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your son. We thank you, God, that you do not want us um, you don't want us to play games. You don't want us just to go through the motions. You don't want your son Christ to be relegated to um, the sidelines. You want him to be at the center. And you want us to experience him at the center and experience his fullness. I thank you, God, that You pour out grace upon grace upon grace, more grace, sufficient grace, full grace, lavish grace upon all who receive Christ, who receive Christ fully. Help us, Lord, this morning. Just crack open our hearts that we would that we would make room for him this morning. God, I thank you for. Everyone that's gathered here today, I thank you that you love us so dearly. You loved this world, and uh, this world deserved to be destroyed. And yet, in love, you sent your son, Christ, to come down, become a man, live a perfect life under the law, die an atoning death on the cross. And rise again so that we might know your fullness. The fullness that is found in him. Where grace upon grace comes to us. Help us to know this. And walk in this. And rejoice in this. Help us just to humble ourselves. And humbly and joyfully receive from your fullness. Grace upon grace. In Jesus name. Amen.